what I have, and so I was praying that the Lord would give me something to share. And then this past week, there was the disturbing national story that Joshua Harris, who was a well-known Christian author and preacher, has now said that he has left the Christian faith, that he has fallen away by the terms that are used in evangelical circles. So it got me thinking about eternal security. And I know there are there are different beliefs on that, but I have come to strongly believe that eternal security is a very real thing. But it's not about whether you have eternal security. It's about what your security is in. And if your security is in the wrong place, it will not be eternal. And so that is the position from which I am going to begin this message today. We're going to be all over the scriptures, so I hope your page-turning fingers are limber. And uh, I hope for the men in the audience that you are paying attention and that you are awake, because if I get to a cross-reference, I'm going to ask for somebody to stand up and read it. This serves the twofold purpose of helping me not to have to turn as many pages and also keeping you awake. So hopefully that twofold purpose will be served. So I want to start out by reading this verse in introduction. Fairly, verily I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. I believe with all my heart that this is, an, this is an instantaneous process. When you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are instantly passed from death to life. So where does that leave us when we see a situation like that of Josh Harris? Well, first of all, I think of the book of John, First John, I believe it is, where John says, they went out from us because they were not of us. So that's the first thing that I think of. And the second thing that I think of is that if someone is truly a Christian, they can struggle, they can backslide, but God will never fully let them go, and eventually he's going to bring them back. Because he said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So the question that we have to ask ourselves, and the title of this message, if you're taking notes, is, in what is my security? In what is my security? You know, it's interesting that I would have a personal illustration for my life to start out this message, but I do. Um, because, I, because I'm disabled, it's been difficult for me to find work. So I've worked a variety of jobs, but only ever part-time. Right now I work 28 hours a week during the school year at Potter's House Christian School in Grand Rapids at the high school as an on-site substitute teacher. And so I substitute for all of the teachers. And I put in, um, I've been putting in three seven-hour days and two three-and-a-half-hour days for the last few years. Well, I was told by disability, the state disability, just a couple weeks ago that I no longer qualify for my $800 disability payment, which cuts my income by a third immediately. So the first reaction is to panic. That's the human reaction. 
but I really feel like God has been sustaining me and hasn't allowed me to go into full panic mode. But yet, there's still this question of what am I going to do now because um, I really relied on that income even with having a job, especially during the summer months because I don't draw a paycheck. So I had to ask myself, where is my security? And so I want to look at a couple different people from the Bible, four to be exact, and find out where their security is and what they can teach us. And the first point I want to make is that Saul's security, King Saul, in the Old Testament, his security was in doing God's will man's way. A lot of times we want to do God's will, but we want to do it for our own effort. And we say, God, I'll go this far for you, but only so far. So let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses... 1 Samuel 15, verses 20 to 23, and we'll find out how this worked for Saul. And Saul said unto Samuel, Yes, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and I have gone in the way which the Lord has sent me, and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and the auction, and the chief of the things, which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. I want you to notice a couple things here. First of all, what did Saul say? He said, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and have gone the way which the Lord sent me. But then he said, the people took of the spoil which should have been destroyed. So did he obey the Lord completely? No, he didn't. And then he said um, this in the end of the verse. He said, these things should have been utterly destroyed. We took them to sacrifice to the Lord thy God in Gilgal. So Saul never internalized his relationship with God. God spoke directly to Saul because Saul was God's first choice. You know, we can debate why, but he was God's selection to be the first king of Israel. So God spoke directly to Saul, but Saul only had a head knowledge of what it was to listen to God. And he always had a better idea than God, or so he thought of how to do things. And uh, and then Samuel challenges him. He said, to obey is better than sacrifice. We read in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, that about all these things you can do for the Lord, but if you don't love him, it means nothing. You can give your body to be burned, and if you don't do it out of love, it means nothing. Which to me is kind of hard to read, because I'm thinking, why would you give your body to be burned if it wasn't for love? But Paul must have sensed that that was happening. Maybe there were some rituals that were happening in Corinth where that kind of thing happened, and it was out of obligation, but it was, there was no love there, so he's using that as an analogy. But 
even though Saul constantly said, I've done the will of the Lord, there was always this thing, well, you didn't go all the way. You didn't do everything that God told you to do. And actually, later in this passage, Samuel was going to say, God is taking away the kingdom from you, and he's going to give it to someone who is better. Can you imagine getting that news? He's going to give it to someone who's better than you. And incidentally, Saul proved his heart. Because what did he do for the next several years? He tried to kill David, the man that God chose. If we could look at Romans chapter 10, verses 1, or Romans, let me double check that. I think it's Romans 10. Yes. Uh, Romans 10, 1 to 4. If we could look at that, that will kind of illustrate this a little bit more. So if a gentleman gets there, if they could stand and read that for us, that would be awesome. Romans 10, 1 through 4. Yes. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Remember that when Jesus was on the earth, he was constantly sparring with the religious leaders. I always find it interesting reading the the story of the Passion when Jesus is on the cross and he is... He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then there's all this mockery happening of Jesus. And it comes right out of Psalm 22. Well, guess who should have known Psalm 22? The very people that were fulfilling the prophecy. These men were people that were learned. They, were, they had studied the scriptures as they knew them. And they missed who Jesus was. He was standing in the midst of them and they missed completely who he was because their hearts, he said their lips draw near to me but their hearts are far from me. And we'll get into that a little bit more as we go on. So, the first point. Saul's security was in doing God's will man's way. So it was a false security. This uh, article I found from a thing, something called The King's Business said this When I was a boy on the farm my father once told me to do a certain thing one day that I really did not like to do He went to town and I noticed that our barn door needed paint I knew where there was a can of red paint and a new brush I tried my hand at painting the door I did a good job but when my father came home I do not need to tell you I do not need to tell you about it It was not a precious memory I performed a service, but I did not do the thing that my father left for me to do. So with the Christian, he will be rewarded not for doing the thing that he wants to do, but for doing the thing which Christ left him here to do to fulfill the Great Commission. And um, incidentally, one quote that I like to go back to as a preacher is I, I heard Alistair Begg from Truth For Life, I think it was, said, if you can do anything else in the world with your life, preach. But if you can't not preach, if you must preach, then that's a good way to know that you're called to do so. Because he said, it's not an easy job. It's a hard job. So if you can do anything else to do that, but if you feel compelled that you must, then it's a good 
indication that that is indeed your calling. So, we need to make sure that we are doing the will of God, not the will of ourselves. Okay, the next person we're going to talk about, point two, the rich farmer's security was in his crops. Luke 12, 16 to 21. Luke 12, 16 to 21. Um, this is Jesus telling a parable and it says and he spoke a parable unto them saying the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully and he thought within himself saying what shall I do because I have no room where to bestow my fruits and he said this will I do I will pull down my barns and build greater and I will bestow all my fruits and my goods and I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast many goods laid up, um, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then those, then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. The thing that we need to remember about everything that we have is that it is a stewardship from God. Jesus said, do not worry about what you will eat or what you will wear because your heavenly Father knows of your needs before you even ask Him. And so He will take care of them. So if He has given you rich rewards, financially speaking, it's because he has rich responsibilities for you. He said, to whom much is given, much shall be required. And this, this man, his security wasn't in God. His security was in his things. And we read in the Proverbs that riches make themselves wings and fly away. It's temporal. You never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Because you can't take it with you. And so... We need to be rich toward God. We need to be generous. And one thing I've found as, as often being on the lower income part of things is that I need to be generous now because if I'm not generous now, if my income situation changes, why will I be, in, why will I be suddenly generous? Generous is a state of heart. And so if we're not generous now, there won't be another time when we will be so. Let's look at 1 Timothy, by way of cross-reference, 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches. For in the living God, who gave us richly all things to enjoy, let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. They may lay hold on eternal life. They need to be ready to give. They need to be willing to share. And God gives us all things richly to enjoy. So you might say, well, I got this good job because I worked hard in college. So I could get the degree that I wanted to have the job that I wanted. But you know what? 
God gave you the brain that you used to get that degree. God gives you the very breath in your nostrils. It's, the Bible says that it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed every day. So even the fact that, that we don't have the threat of being consumed by fire every day is a mercy of God. And he talks about uncertain riches. Again, the riches may be there one day and then not be there the next. Paul knew all about that. He said, I know how to abound and how to suffer need. How to have plenty, how to have little. But I'm resolved in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. So it's a good lesson to us. So the first two are Saul put his his uh, security in doing God's will, man's way. And then the rich farmer's security was in his crops. Um, and I have this story to share about that. John G. Wendell and his sisters were some of the most miserly people of all time. Although they had received a huge inheritance from their parents, they spent very little of it and did all they could to keep their wealth from themselves. John was able to influence five of his six sisters to never marry, and they lived in the same house in New York City for 50 years. When the last sister died in 1931, her estate was valued at more than $100 million. Her only dress was one that she had made herself and had worn every day for 25 years. The Wendells, well, and she had worn it for 25 years. The Wendells had such a compulsion to hold on to their possessions that they lived like paupers. Even worse, they were the kind of people who Jesus referred to who lay up treasure for themselves and are not rich toward God. So, just imagine that, having one dress and not even having more than that and wearing it for 25 years because you don't want to spend the money that you have. It reminds me of the story of the cruise where the guy goes on a saves up all his money and gets passage on a cruise ship and locks himself in his cabin and hardly ever comes out. And then the last day of the cruise, he comes out and is on the deck. And people have said, well, why haven't you been in the dining room eating all this wonderful food that's in the dining room? And he said, well, I barely had enough money for my passage. I didn't think I could afford to eat the food at the restaurants. And they said, it's all included. You didn't have to pay a dime for the food in the restaurants after you get your passage. And we just read that God gave us all things richly to enjoy. God wants to add things to us. He doesn't say that earthly things are bad. But he does say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So, We have our third portrait of security, and that is the Pharisee's security was in the law. Matthew 23, 1 to 5. Matthew 23, 1 to 5. Yeah. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, 
the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries <coughs> broad and enlarge the burdens of their garments. Remember what Jesus also said to them, that they pray to be seen of men, and if they pray to be seen of men, then they'll have the reward. Look at this passage in Matthew 23, and, and he said, All things whatsoever they bid you observe, observe and do. He's not saying don't do what they say, because they are uh, charged with showing them the law of God. But he's saying don't copy them, because they don't do what they profess to do. And they put burdens on other people that they themselves can't even bear. We're not perfect, but we're going to expect you to be perfect. And um, and they make themselves look better than they are because all their works are to be seen of men. They make broad their flactories. The flactories were um, like things they would wear on their... Um, Arms and their, I think the flattery mainly was the way they were on their head. There's a proverb that talks about binding the law of God on your arms and on the front of you and on your head. And so they take it, they took it very literally in that culture and they would tie these things to their bodies. And the bigger your flattery, I guess the more prestige you had, I guess it was like the automobile of that era was to have a big flactory. But uh, <laughs> but the point being that they didn't care about what the law said. They only cared about that it was shown that they were following the law. One of my favorite examples of this is when the lame man is healed by Jesus after being let through the roof, and Jesus says, take up your bed and go home. And he's walking home with his bed probably leaping and jumping for joy. And the Pharisees say, why are you carrying your bed on the Sabbath day? They cared more about the bed than the man in it. And my friends, that is a problem. So, their security is in the law. Let's look really quickly at um, Philippians 3. 3 to 11, if someone could read that. Philippians 3, 3 to 11. And then if somebody could be prepared to follow that up with Matthew 15, 7 to 9. Somebody have Philippians 3? Yes, Philippians 3. 3 to 11. Uh, Philippians 3, starting in verse 3. For we, are, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I might have confidence even in the flesh, 
If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I, have, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. So this is Paul giving all his credentials and saying, if anybody could rejoice in the law, it should be me. Because I kind of had a, had a very high rank as far as someone who followed the law and was zealous for everything that I thought was good. But then he says, I, I, I count it all loss that I may win Christ. And he talks about wanting to know the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. Without the power of the resurrection, no amount of earthly accolades, no amount of success means anything. As a matter of fact, Paul goes as far as to say in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if we had every good thing about Christ but he died and didn't rise again, we would still be of all men most miserable. I don't know about you, but I don't want that to be me. And then he says, now is Christ risen, and that's why he's able to write at the end of that chapter in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, so that you may know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why? Because we serve a living Savior. One who has, has given us the power to do everything that we need to do. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, It is God who worketh in you both the will and to do of his good pleasure. So we see here, and then I'll just read very quickly from Matthew 15, 7 to 9. It says, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Okay, so if you know anything about the Jews, you know that there was there's a, there's five books called the books of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And there's something in the neighborhood of like 600 laws that the people of Israel were supposed to follow. And yet the Pharisees added to that list. I just want to share this with you. In contrast to the two commands of Christ, the Pharisees developed a system of 613 laws 365 negative commands and 248 positive laws. By the time Christ came, it had, it had produced a heartless, cold, and arrogant brand of righteousness. As such, it contained at least 10 tragic flaws. New laws continually needed to be invented for new situations. Two, accountability to God is replaced by accountability to men. Three, it reduces a person's ability to personally discern. 
Four, it creates a judgmental spirit. Five, the Pharisees confused personal preferences with divine law. Six, it produces inconsistencies. Seven, it created a false standard of righteousness. Eight, it became a burden to the Jews. Nine, it was strictly external. And ten, it was rejected by Christ. So all these things that they thought they were doing good by were not um, good. It's like when the disciples were walking through the field with Jesus and biting the heads off grain and eating it because they were hungry. And the Pharisees basically said, well, why are they working on the Sabbath? And Jesus said, well, the Sabbath was made for men. The Sabbath was made for you guys, not you for the Sabbath. And they got it backwards. They, they thought, well, we were made for the Sabbath. We have to do the Sabbath the exact right way because that's what we were made for. But Jesus is saying, no, actually, this is a mercy for you. And he talked about how David ate the showbread in the temple because he was hungry and his, his men needed nourishment. And again, they were missing the point. They had all the proper things to do. They knew the word of God, but they didn't know the word, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. He stood right in front of them, and they, they didn't acknowledge him as God. The whole book of John is them asking him who he is, them, him telling them who he is, them rejecting his answer. Then they ask a little while later, who are you? And he tells them who he is, and then they reject his answer. That's the whole book of John. And yet, he still stuck it out and, and died for the sins of all men. And thankfully rose again the third day. So we've seen three different groups of people who haven't put their security in the right thing. So, um... Let us look at the fourth um, point, the fourth person profile, and that is the thief on the cross had his security in Jesus Christ. Luke twenty three thirty nine. Luke twenty three thirty nine. Such a simple story, but yet a powerful one. Luke 23, 39-43. When I get there, I will read it. Um, Luke 23, 39 says, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. And he said, Jesus, said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. This man that was a thief on the cross, he had no merit of his own to stand on. He couldn't get off the cross and do good works. He couldn't get off the cross and listen to Jesus' teaching. He couldn't do anything. And some people, I think, erroneously say, well, he only trusted Christ because he was afraid and he still went to heaven. 
And there may have been some fear there. I'm not going to dispute that. But if you read Matthew, you find out that he was mocking Jesus too. But at some point, he received salvation, not because he feared hell, as much as he realized who Jesus was. And he realized that Jesus had the power to make him, as we read earlier in the introduction, pass from death to life. And Jesus promised exactly that. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. So, do I believe in eternal security? Absolutely I do. Jesus said in John chapter 12, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. But see what the problem is I think for a lot of people who profess to be Christians is they put their security in the wrong thing. It's not the denomination you go to. It's not the number of church services you go to every week. It's not even that you give tithes every week. Or that you know the Bible backwards and forwards. I heard a story about a minister who visited Israel and he visited with a scribe whose sole job it was to continuously copy the Psalms. And he said, how rich must it be that you get to copy the words of God to his people every day of your life? And the man said, I'm an atheist. I don't believe one word that I'm writing is true. It doesn't matter how much you read the words if you don't know the word. So if your faith is rested on Jesus Christ and Him alone, then your eternity is secure. My, my father made the point. He said, people say you can lose your salvation, that you can walk away from it. But the Bible says, let's look at 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, verses 17 to 21. Somebody gets there if they could read it. Because I want us to notice something as we close here today. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, creation. The old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all things, I'm sorry, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the word to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I want you to notice that first verse there. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Have you ever heard of anything being uncreated? It's not possible for God to uncreate. If he has created you a new creation, you will not be uncreated. And then we see what is, what is the way that we are able to be created. It's because he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. My prayer for you today is that you will get your security 
grounded in the right thing, not in wealth, not in doing God's will your way, but in doing God's way, will God's way, in surrendering your life fully to Him, in letting Him be the one, as Paul said, it's in Him that we live and move and have our being. So if you have not trusted Christ, the living God, to come into you and turn your heart from idols, then you have no hope of eternal security. But the Bible says that I am sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit because I've been converted by the blood of Jesus Christ. He doesn't take away his seal. He doesn't give up on me. If I could lose my salvation, I would, because I lose everything. But I'm hid with Christ in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for um, that you are good and faithful and true and honest to each of us. That you show us who we are, but you don't leave us there. That you say, come as you are, but don't stay as you are. Come as you are, but don't stay there. Lord, we just pray that that would be the cry of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.